Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome and good afternoon to uh, this edition of Voices of Experience. You're listening on KIXI AM 880. You probably know that if you're tuned in to Kixie. And it's also simulcast on KKNW 1150 AM. And again, I do have it as in podcast form. I'm just going to say it now so sometimes I don't get it in at the end. You will not hear the Timeless Classic song if you are listening to the podcast. We'll promote it at the beginning but you won't hear it. So that means you have to listen to Kixie itself because only part of it's played on KKNW. That's all licensing stuff. We'll just move on from that. But just letting you know, audience, I don't want to disappoint all the people because I know that's why a lot tune in, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can just turn the dial and smile. Listen to Kixie for the music. Listen to uh, KKNW for the talk and the podcast. Wow. That was good. I like it. That just come off the... No. (laughs) <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> All right, good for you. Uh, let's see. Today we I, it's a tight show. We have a lot of guests here. Mm-hmm. Uh, first up is Mayor Bruce Harrell. Now he is not here, but I went to Rotary last week and heard him speak, and uh, he talked about really the state of the city. So I'm going to take segments of that speech. We'll talk about it a little bit, and if you have any comments that you want to make about it, you can call four two five. 653-1166, and leave some uh, impressions, and we'll get it on the air next week or the week after if you'd like us to do that, 425-653-1166. I had an interview with a Kelly Yang, and she is a best-selling author for the New York Times. She's written her fifth book called Top Story, and uh, a little bit about her, we'll talk about her more when we do the interview, but her family immigrated to the U.S. from China. And this is not one of those stories where they're on a boat trying to get out mm-hmm. in the last moment. Their family was actually doing quite well in China <laughs> as far as the economy and things. But his parents said, it's time to get out of here. We want to move to the U.S. Wow. for reasons of freedom. Um, so talked about that. And she's a really interesting woman. She graduated from high school when she was 13. And she went to Yale Law School at 17. Holy smokes. Overachiever. Yeah. She, I do ask her about that. Was she glad she did that? She had a surprising answer. Meandering Musings with Neil Peterson. He's going to talk about Paris today, his trip that he made in about August. And the reason we call it that, he has a lot of musings about what he sees. It's not about going to the Louvre Museum or something mm-hmm. like that. It's more about really spending time in Paris in the neighborhoods and things. I think it's, you'll enjoy that. Voices of History for Today, a famous publisher's daughter was kidnapped. This week, about 50-some-odd years ago, we'll talk about that and some circumstances with that. And also, today, on this date, 50 years ago, an incredible thing happened. There was something called the Battle of the Sexes. Battle of the Sexes. And that will be discussed today on Voices of History. And uh, Timeless Classics, well, talk about a song from 1965. But the difference here is, I don't know what tipped me to this, but we've been doing these Timeless Classics. For some reason, I thought about what are the most played songs of all time? So I did some exploration into that. And there are various surveys that show that, a better word than surveys, but websites to say, well, this is number one, this was three, or something right. like that. Now, I always thought yesterday what I've heard was the most number one played song. And that certainly showed up on one or two of the sites. But this song showed up as number one. I liked it, but I never dreamed that it would be number one, at least in the United States. Hmm. So that's going to be the timeless classic for today. And that would be the most listened to show across. On radio and the whole in history. Most requested. They had, I mean, I don't know what their research, how they did it, you know, and, 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 and did it, but apparently they have a system because 
a lot of the songs were up there. So anyhow, I'm going to probably delve into that some more. But I'm playing this song today because I really liked it. But again, did I ever think this would be a number one song played? No, Hmm. no way. On Solopreneur today, by the way, another uh, concept we're talking about, and that is going into business for yourself. I have some questions and I have some traits I want you to consider if you're thinking about doing this. One is about organization. I've talked about that. I'd like to bring that up again. I had an incident this morning on getting an interview from someone, and it's a good news, bad news thing about being organized. I talk about being organized, Mm -hmm. but you'll find out I wasn't that organized, but I was bailed out because I did some things in advance to not have this be, not a disaster, but it would have been, you know, embarrassing. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. All right. And then the other thing, what I consider to be so important is execution. Is like a lot of people say, I, I can set out to do these things. We'll talk about you need to execute those things once you get going. And I'm also, once again, we had some people call last week. I did write a book about self-employment. It's called, Is Self-Employment for You? Anyone can start a business. Only a few can sustain a business. That's kind of what I try to put an umbrella around the whole thing. But um, I'm going to give away a free copy of the book like I did last week. And the first person to call, 425 425- 653-1166 will get a copy of that book. They can do it anytime. 425-653-1166. If you want to wait for the solopreneur segment, we can certainly, uh, we'll give those numbers out again. So let's see. I guess we can go into the show. We're kind of moving along pretty good. Anything Absolutely. before we go into uh, our Voices of History segment? Uh, not for me, other than, uh, you, you know, I have an interview coming up next week. Talk I was going to just talk really briefly on that. So I'm going to interview Dave Colburn. He is with um, the Northwest Wildlife Sanctuary right there in Whidbey Island. Um, and what they do is they're designed to foster um, those animals that may otherwise not have made it. Um, so it's a placement for animals who find themselves needing a home. Provide sanctuary and assistance to animals that have found themselves in difficult or dangerous situations through no fault of their own. Interestingly, a lot of these animals are what would be considered exotic animals, mm. particularly for here. Things like sloths, you, you're able to see there. So they, they, they've built this sanctuary uh, not only to help the animals but to educate. So he does a lot of things wow, with, with kids and schools and troops to mm. come out and learn about these animals particularly animals they may never see outside of, say, Woodland Park Zoo or, you know, Point Defiant Zoo. Sure. Looking forward to that. Seriously. Next week, that'll yeah, be great. Next what week. island is it on? Woodby? Woodby Island. Woodby Island. Oak Harbor. Is Oak the, Harbor. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Great. We'll uh, look forward to that. All right. So back with Voices of History in just a moment. So we're back... Uh, Voices of Experience on KKNW, AM 1150, KIXI, AM 880, and, of course, the podcast that will you can get it on that way, too. So, so let's start with Voices of History. Fifty years ago today, September 20th, 1973, in a battle of the sexes, tennis player Billie Jean King beats Bobby Riggs, a former number one ranked men's player. Riggs was a self proclaimed male chauvinist. He boasted that women were inferior and couldn't handle the pressure of the game. Excuse me. The match was witnessed by 30,000 spectators at the Houston Astrodome and 50 million viewers worldwide. King made a Cleopatra-style entrance on a gold litter carriage carried by men dressed as ancient slaves. How about this for TV? Oh, and Howard Cosell Howard was Cosell. there to call the match in which King beat Riggs 6-4-6-3-6-3. The event was subject of a 2017 movie starring Emma Stone and Steve Carell. I have not seen that movie, but I'm going to now. Have you any of you guys? I've seen it. It's good. It's very fun. All right. I got to check it out as well. So do you have any impressions having seen the movie? I mean, I really, I, 
remember this vividly, but I ne- I didn't watch it, and I just wasn't that taken into it with all the what was going on. So you right. probably have a better handle than me on it. You know, it's always hard to say with historical uh, events versus the movie dramatization of said events, how much license is being taken with the movie. Mm. Uh, but it, it definitely, you know, was fun, and it, it really kind of came off like the Bobby Riggs was kind of in on the joke like you know he didn't take this too seriously and uh maybe just kind of felt like this was a little boost to his career more so than he actually felt the hard misogynistic feelings but uh you know that was just my take you know i was wondering about that because again i wasn't that close to what the event was going on but i was thinking about that before the show was he someone who was just in for it and, and and just kind of did exactly what you said. Right, right. But, kind of remind me of like how Howard Stern kind of portrayed himself in the '90s. You know, kind of kind of a sleaze bag, but <laughs> that was kind of his character. Sure. Um, so that, I don't know. <laughs> Again, that's just my interpretation from the movie. Um, I was too young to remember the actual event. I don't think I was actually born yet. <laughs> Come to think of it, uh, but uh, yeah. Okay. Eric. Fun movie. Other yeah, Eric. I do remember. I do remember it because of Howard Cosell and ABC. They did such a great job at events like this. You know, they they broke ground on how it, it, it almost, remind, almost reminded me now, looking back, of like pay per view. You know how they really they really pre sold it. And as you said, there was so much pomp and circumstance of her coming in and him as well. Kind of reminds you of that opening scene in Rocky, you know, where it's all about the show sure. until they get in the ring. I wonder if they stole that. And Howard that. Cosell's there. Come on. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he's, you know, and he's just going off like like he normally does. But I distinctly remember in grade school, kids going back and forth, the girls against the boys. That's how, at that age, we saw it. It was a battle of the genders, uh, uh, if you will. And that probably what probably is what led me to watch it with my dad. I remember watching with my dad. I just wonder today if there was social media around then like we have today with iPhones and mm-hmm. all the sites and things you know that was an event that took place and it was a one night thing and you read about it and you yeah. kind of went on but i wonder i just wondered that again i don't have any idea but something worth pondering i think as to what would the event take in a different shape maybe not but Probably would have been different. Well, I'm blown away. You said 50 million people tuned in? Uh, actually, 30 million. Excuse me. You're right. 50 million. Never 50 mind. million people. So that would have been the infancy of satellite, you know, satellite broadcasts sure. and things like that. So worldwide. Yeah, it was worldwide. Um, amazing. I mean, sure. I never knew that. It's yeah. amazing. All right. So uh, that was kind of fun. On a more serious note, which was around that same time, on September 18th, 1975, Patty Hearst was captured in a San Francisco apartment. She was arrested for armed robbery. Now, some background on that. On February 4th, 1974, Patty Hearst, the daughter of newspaper publisher Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped from her apartment in Berkeley. Witnesses saw three kidnappers and all were armed. Three days later, the Symbionese Liberation Army, known as the SLA, announced to a Berkeley radio station they were holding her as a prisoner of war. They said they wanted $70 for every person between Santa Rosa and L.A., California. That's I don't know an why odd demand. Cities. I'm going, just imagine the city next door. Wait, why not us? Right. There's some census guy that gets a phone call. You yeah. know, I need to know. How many people? <laughs> yeah, it was just like, okay. Um, and uh, let's see. So Randolph Hearst. Gave away $2 million uh, worth of food to the food bank for this. And a more uh, local story on that, the Secretary of State, A. Ludlow Kramer, was the person put in charge of going to California and heading up the distribution of the food. I don't know how good a job he did or what, but he went down there and was appointed to do that. I don't know how you apply for something like that. Um, Let's see. Patty Hearst declared in a tape sent to authorities that she was joining the SLA and uh, she was doing so in her own free will. A surveillance camera took a photo of her then participating in an armed robbery in San Francisco. I remember that photo very well. Let's see. She was captured uh, then 
convicted on March 20th, 1976. She was sentenced to seven years in prison. Her sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter on February of 1979. She later married her bodyguard in 2001. She received a full pardon from President Clinton in 2001. She now splits her time between New York and Connecticut. She is still married to her bodyguard, and they have two grown children. Yeah, after you mentioned that you were going to bring this up in today's show, I, I, I went online and did some research because I thought I knew the whole story. I barely scratched the surface. This has so many twists and turns. What a crazy uh, story. Uh, yeah, I mean, ha, has there been a movie about this? I, well, I'm I, sure there has. Yeah, there's definitely been at least TV okay. uh, dramatizations of it, but wow. Speaking of social yeah. media, we'll look that up. Yeah, and further upon her release, I mean, it's so interesting. She marries, you know, the guard that was there at the facility, but then to have kids, and then she became involved in a foundation um, helping children with AIDS, and she actively works with charities now. So I don't know if she found a better way, let's say, in prison or what, but uh, what a a deep and interesting story all the way around. I remember the bits and pieces of it. Um, I was going to college then, and I just remember everything here at some point happened. Again, it wasn't like these timelines were really tied it when you put it together. But yes, I remember when she was um, captured. And then I do remember when, you know, she became a member of the SL. You go, what? Here's a real interesting factoid I found. So Representative Leo Ryan was collecting signatures on a petition for Hearst's release several weeks before he was murdered while visiting the Jonestown settlement. Do you remember when those representatives went down yes. to ask the people at Jonestown, do you want to come back? Are you being held against your will? And then they ended up being assassinated right. on, because Jim Jones was convinced they were going to come back with a big army or whatever. So they killed them on the tarmac uh, as they were leaving that, that jungle airstrip. I have no And he idea has a tie to this. Oh, he wow. Had, so there's a tie there. And John Wayne also uh, chimed in in this situation. Uh, He spoke um, basically saying, if we can believe that this many people in Jonestown were brainwashed, how can we not believe that Patty Hearst was not brainwashed, a young teenager? So he was kind of on her side. I I was too. I mean, at the end of this whole thing, I remember hearing her mother say, and it just convinced me, look, she was a normal college girl, I think, just living in an apartment. Somebody came up and, you know, kidnapped her. She had never written anything about this or whatsoever. Mm. You have to think that she was brainwashed and, and just got into this. And now I think we're more sophisticated than that. But I, I thought it was pretty harsh that she got sentenced to jail and, and so on. But, you know, I think maybe some of it was this was the Hearst people, the Hearst Castle. Mm. Rich can't let the, you know, the rich people off the hook. So I think some of that probably happened in here. I'm glad she did get uh, not only let out of jail, but then getting a full pardon. And, and she got on with her life. And. I don't think I've read anything where she's gotten in organizations like this again. <laughs> no, it sounds like she's off doing good. Right. By the way, there is two documentaries about this story, The Radical Story of Patty Hearst uh, and Gorilla, The Taking of Patty Hearst uh, from 2004. And there is a dramatization just called Patty Hearst from 1988, which by all accounts is not very good. So I'd stick <laughs> okay. with the, the documentaries. Documentaries nice. are yeah. always better, that's for sure. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that, Eric. All right, so we'll be back in just a few moments with uh, Bruce Harrell at Rotary Club. Have you ever wanted to go above and beyond for your community? Volunteering for your local fire or EMS department is your opportunity. Join a family that will serve with you, always have your back, and train you to be the best version of yourself. As a volunteer, you will meet new people, learn new skills, and make a meaningful impact. Learn more at makemeafirefighter.org. That's makemeafirefighter.org. So, welcome back to Voices of Experience, and uh, we've Enter the segment with uh, Mayor Bruce Harrell. He is serving as the 57th mayor of Seattle. He was a member of the Seattle City Council from 2008 to 2020. He grew up in Seattle and attended the University of Washington. He spoke at Rotary last week about 
I would uh, say the state of the city. And um, I think it's a good idea to get a chance to hear what he has to say, because in the news today, I don't think we allow time for people really to have conversations. They're 15 second hits, you know, and things like that. So I thought it would be a good public service to give some time to extending his remarks out. And you can make your own uh, decisions about what you had to say for yourself. So um, let's just get with it. So what I'm going to do is give you some bullet points on what's happening in the city. But I will forewarn you that, quite frankly, no matter what data I share with you before we have Q&A, it is all for naught if you don't feel safe and you don't feel welcome and that you feel we're having in another trajectory. Feelings are not necessarily data. They're data points. Between January of 2023 and July of 2023, Seattle has reported nearly a 17% decrease in all major reported crimes and a 13 decrease in reported violent crimes. We are trending the right way, but what's equally important, as I said earlier, that if people don't feel safe, these statistics are meaningless. I had to change the narrative on public safety because I don't think people realize that is my charter responsibility first. We could talk about business uh, acumen or business policies, tax policies, climate change, but my first charter has to be to make sure we are safe, our babies are safe, my grandchildren are safe, your brothers and sisters are safe, people who are blind can walk streets that are safe, mothers can roll with strollers down the street and feel safe. And so what I said was, number one, I'm not abolishing a police department, I'm not defunding a police department, we're going to change the narrative because I'm going to lean into my charter responsibility to make sure employees and employers feel safe. So not only are we trending in the right way, I think that people understand that the narrative that I say as mayor is aligned with what the people want. And you will see in city council races, I think, if things go the right way, that the alignment between elected officials and the people are, more, are better aligned. Because I think sometimes that in funky Seattle, uh, some politicians get misaligned and, and one way or the other to still get elected. SPD has recovered illegal firearms at a record pace. We know that there are guns out there, too many guns in the wrong hands. We know that we recovered 869 guns, SPD, through July. Now, officers must be able to continue this critical work to keep, to keep guns out of the wrong hands to prevent violent crimes in communities, community safe. That is the data that we've done. So far this year, SPD, in collaboration with state and federal partners, we have seized over 2 million fentanyl pills. 2 million, okay? Last month alone, Seattle Police Detectives, along with our federal partners, seized 30,000, last month, fentanyl pills with a street value of over $200,000 during a single narcotics operation. So what I've decided as a mayor is to make sure that my partnership with our federal partners talking about where these pills are manufactured, how they're made, who are selling them, that we have these um, coordinated efforts to clean up our streets. This is not a war on anyone. This is a protection measure to make sure that we are saving our children, saving our youth who are dying from poison. In July, our office announced a spending plan of $27 million toward enhanced treatment facilities, new addiction services, and improved overdose response. I have zero appetite to arrest anyone that's sick. I have all of the appetite, Rotarians, to treat people who are sick. And so you'll see that the $7 million that I announced of a plan that will go toward capital investments and facilities is a treatment strategy while I talk about cleaning up our streets. One does not exclude the other. People want to know why I want to clean up the streets because I don't want anyone to die in a tent because of heat exhaustion or they're freezing to death. To do nothing is inhumane. So in the second quarter of 2023, a unified care team, a care team that I actually established, a new process of making sure I get all these people that are doing God's work to help people. The unified care team coordinated 554 referrals to shelter. That's a 21% increase over the same time last year. The USD's UC team, the unified care team, removed over 1.6 million pounds of debris from public spaces. 1.6. Now, you may not have an appreciation for how much work that is, but let me just say this. I believe in a clean city. My wife would tell you I am almost OCD about cleanliness and order. 
Um, I understand she likes putting her purse on the kitchen table when she walks in, although that's not where it's supposed to go. I understand she likes putting her shoes. Well, she's not here. She's, I hope she doesn't watch this. <laughs> but I just think that it's hard for me to think and hard for people to process when things are just run amok. And so what we're trying to do is making sure that in all areas we're cleaning up pounds of debris from public spaces. Even with rising requests, the UCT provides timely responses to neighborhood concerns with a 98% of the requests being triaged within three days. Again, we measure it, we, we look at our outcomes, and we try to improve it. Uh, with respect to housing and homelessness, again, you'll hear the reason why I was in front of the editorial board is I have, I have proposed a $970 million housing levy to, to, to meet the needs of the urgent housing crisis. That's a, uh, supporting the development of over, over 3,100 units of, of new affordable housing throughout the city and serving more than 9,000 low-income individuals and families. We negotiated this deal. We went to everyone that touches housing whether they're affordable housing developers or people in the housing authorities, advocates, climate advocates, business community, uh, chamber representatives, uh, developers for profit, everyone in the gamut of housing and said this is what we have to do to address the issue. Yes, it's really cool that some very wealthy people could live in Seattle, but you know what's cooler than that? When a teacher and a nurse could live in Seattle, and that's cool stuff right there. When a food service worker could li live in this city. And so you look at the components of this housing levy, and I'm asking our city to step up. We are one of the wealthiest cities in this country. Don't get it twisted. Per capita, we're one of the wealthiest. Now, with that becomes, the, I think, the burden and the obligation to make sure the people that are falling through the cracks, like my mother and father, who were not college educated, and they just worked simple jobs, the people who are falling through the cracks have a place to call home here in Seattle. So it has to be very intentional, and so that's why I met with the editorial board, and Hopefully they will get behind this very uh, collaborative effort that we've put together from the housing community. How can Rotary help to recruit more police officers? How can you engage the public in your recruitment efforts? How can we help you? Sure. Our recruiting numbers are getting up. We're getting about six applications a day. We looked at the streamlining of the process, even from the physical part to the aptitude part. We're, we're looking at, without lowering the quality of officers, how we can do that internally. What you can do there's a few things. Number one, simply recruit. There might be people that you know that said you may want to consider a career. That often those that, that come as laterals from other cities, their partner or spouses may look for employment. And if you're willing to not hire them, but just assist them in the roles, you may know how to do that. So I'm looking at employers to see if you would help us partner. Uh, you know, it's a big decision coming to Seattle if you're coming from a different city. So you could open up the doors on the spousal support as well. Gun violence, can you go a little bit deeper of that? I need everyone to understand that under current law, our state legislatures, they control that space. That's the RCW 9.41.290. That exempts cities or mayors like myself from getting into the space of regulating gun issues. We have too many guns in the wrong hands. And I've been to other countries, as has many of you, where they are not founded upon the same principles. Now, I'm not suggesting we go out there and seize everyone's guns. I understand constitutional law. But what I'm asking for, and you're going to hear more support, is I'm asking for, I want to put something on the ballot eventually, within the next couple of years, to allow cities to stop from being preempted. In other words, give cities a role in the regulation of guns. So there you have it. That's uh, Mayor Harrell, and that's uh, part of his speech, not the entire speech, but it gives you a pretty good idea of what he was talking about in uh, terms of public safety and some of the strides we've made. My observation has been that, you know, it's getting better. I was, you know, I go down there. I was down there today, as a matter of fact. But we still have a ways to go, and I think everybody knows that. But there is a critical mass coming back. I mean, traffic is back. I mean, trying to get a parking place. God, I wish it was the way it was before. <laughs> no, not really. And I did walk around and talk to some retailers. I got some recordings of that. I'm going to play that next week to hear what they had to say. And um, I think the news is better. They're feeling better about the, uh, you know, what's happening in downtown Seattle. Now, now, one thing that I wish he had addressed, but he didn't because that, that had already occurred. And that was, and I don't know how he could have, but it's too soon. But um, that uh, Janavi Kandula, um, who was hit in the mm -hmm. crosswalk, you know what I'm talking about. Nothing said about that. 
And um, I think that was unfortunate. That's the only downside. But I felt he touched on the points that needed to be, and I think he's uh, trying to get there. But I think he has a ways to go as well. Yeah, I, uh, I've actually never really heard him speak that long. I, I'm used to just seeing him on the news, local news, and little clips here and there. And as you say, it's 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 hard to 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 get a, an opinion of something when you're hearing 15 second sound bites about it, you know, um, or or listening in a vacuum. That's never good, you know. So it's great to kind of hear him and long form talk about the issues of the city. He's actually a great speaker. Um, he, you know, he's entertaining. He had he had a couple of jokes in there, and uh, he kept on point, which which I found really uh, really good. Um, my only concern is, I think, like everybody else's, uh, you know, is is this just sort of a whack a mole situation where we're moving homeless around, clearing a camp, and it pops up somewhere else? And is it a situation that if Seattle gets its all its ducks in a row, to then then these camps move out to the burbs, if you will, or over to the east side. Who knows? Sure. Um, I think everybody's on board with they want a solution. They want to help these people. There's no way to live a life. So I'm glad that he's about that treatment end. It's just what is it? Is it a carrot or a stick or both that gets them to that treatment, you know, so they don't they don't have to wake up every morning on a street street corner after taking fentanyl, let's say, and wondering how the heck did I even get here kind of a thing, you know? Sure. I mean, that's just my opinion or, or my, my take on it. Um, I'm curious, too, did he mention anything about sister cities that we work with that may have similar issues and um, in anything that's maybe come out of one of those those cities that's a great idea that's really worked for them? Well, he said something along the lines that didn't get into the recording, but he said something, it's a good thing we're not Portland. <laughs> but uh, Portland didn't okay. appreciate that. No, probably not. But it was kind of one of those smart comments, but um, not really. Uh, he didn't because he thinks Seattle's heading in the right direction and we're going to be the pathfinders the way out. He did say that. So okay. whether he's hey. right there, what the heck? It's a uh, tough problem. I 100% hope he's right. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we're going to come up with um, Neil's meandering musings. Neil, you just got back from France. found it was interesting that in, let's say, Seattle and major cities in this country, most of the homeless live downtown. But in, in Paris, it's in the suburb. The poverty and the uh, immigration issues you see are outside of the main city where the tourists are mostly focused. And I think this is partly by design, but partly by economics. And so it's striking. Uh, you don't see homeless in downtown Paris. And so some of it you think is maybe by design, they kind of set it out in the suburbs, or again, about the maybe the cost of living in Paris versus out in the suburbs, it's cheaper or something like that? Yeah, the, the cost of living in the central part of Paris is just you know out of sight, the raw economics. And then I think that's probably combined with a fairly rigorous policy of uh, you know seeing homeless on the streets is probably not good for tourism. On another topic, too, you were talking about French waiters. You said they're pretty amazing in terms of their service, but what you found out, too, that you wanted to share, that they have a coldness to them, and uh, you found towards their customers, you found that kind of shocking. I did. Uh, you know, number one, uh, the first thing you see and, and feel and experience with a French waiter is their professionalism. This is not a summer job or an odd job to pick up a little extra bucks. They are professional waiters and have been there for years and really know what they're doing. On the flip side of that, however, they are, <laughs> they're basically in charge and they don't bend for a customer. I mean, it's, they're doing it their way and, or it's the highway. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was sitting down once at an outdoor uh, cafe and I ordered something and and then after a fair amount of time, I looked over and I saw my waiter standing on the sidewalk just outside the restaurant smoking a cigarette. And the waiter had never even taken my order in to have it processed before he took his break for a cigarette right in front of, in eyesight of everybody else in the restaurant and thought nothing of it. Did you say anything? 
No, I did not. Yeah, because again, <laughs> they'd say, look at you, like, what's your problem? Right. I mean, no. what are you talking about? I'm taking a smoke break, so <laughs> I'll get to your meal when I can. So you said there's a just a lack of overweight people walking around. Yeah, it's, it's uh, again, it's dramatic, the difference between just looking at the physical, the physiques of, of Parisians versus the physiques of Americans in our cities. You'd see very few overweight people in Paris, and I think, I think it's a combination of things. They really are focused on their meals. Meals are very important, and by the same token, they have a process in their meals which sounds elongated and tortuous in many respects, seven different courses and that type of thing. They're relatively health courses, and the portions are quite smaller than what we're used to. Uh, Secondly, you see very few fast food, what we would call fast food restaurants. And then third, uh, people walk a lot in Paris, and they get on bicycles. I think that was one of the most striking things to me. I mean, on a given street, I'd say half the vehicles on a street are bicycles. They're not just an add-on on the side bike lane. I mean, they're right there. And many times myself, I found myself, even though I had my Metro Pass, I would take a bike because I could get there so much faster on a bike than I could by going, you know, in a bus or a, an Uber or even a Metro. Now, you were there for two weeks, and you stayed in an apartment, not in a hotel. One of the reasons you did that is because you were able to get to know that neighborhood really well. That's right. I had really never done that before. I did one of these home exchanges uh, where they came and stayed in my place and, and I went to theirs. And I, I just tended to focus on the neighborhood I was in and just walking around, uh, walking up for a bite to eat for lunch or a bite to eat for breakfast or going and finding food uh, for, for a snack and that type of thing. And what happened was that it took me nine days of the 14, before I went to my first museum, my first typical, if you will, tourist spot. I spent the first nine days just experiencing that neighborhood that I was living in. And what a, you know, a different experience that was than my previous trips to Paris, which have been very tourist-oriented. So you would do this again? Is this the way you think? uh, I mean, oh, let me just put it this way. A couple trips to Paris, you do the tourist-oriented thing, but going back, do something like you do. Is this something that you're going to do in the future? Because you do a lot of traveling. We're just talking about Paris today. Is this a sort of relationship in various cities in Europe or wherever that you will do going forward? Yes. You know, Rick Steves talks about the difference between a tourist and a traveler. I've been fortunate enough to have done the tourist stuff. And now I'm focused more on being a traveler. And what I mean by that is somebody who's experiencing the culture and the... Um, the day-to-day lives of people that are living in, in different places. And also, you had time to take a French cooking class and then a French language class while you were there. I did, and in both cases, I failed. <laughs> okay, do tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my French is, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's because of my age or because of my ADHD or what have you, but I, I'm having a tough time acquiring new languages skills at this age. And then, and then secondly, my cooking uh, leaves a little bit to be desired. I basically am a griller. I love to grill everything. And if I don't grill, I microwave. Well, that is not the way the French cook. All right. So that's not how the French cook, not how I cook either. Thank you, Neil Peterson. Again, uh, he has his blog. It's uh, called Meandering Musings. And all you need to do is Google neilstrips.com. And you can get uh, his, all his blogs. It's go back to like 10, 11 years ago. And um, also, he is starting a podcast this fall, and he's working out of the studios here. So that will be coming, and we'll let you know more about that as he gets close, closer to launching that. What else? Okay, I said at the beginning of the show that we were going to talk about some self-employment and two things I wanted to say and leave you with this today if you're considering it. You should really consider if you're an organized person, your prospects for success will be enhanced enormously. If you're not, I go as far as to say, don't even try. There are ways to get more organized, and I'm going to talk about more of that in the ensuing weeks. But I did write a book called Is Self-Employment for You? And uh, if you'd like to get a free copy of it, 
Uh, it, uh, you can get it by calling 425, area code 425-653-1166. Leave your name and address, and I will get you a copy of that book and, of course, zip code. But uh, you'll get a free copy of that book. I've given several out, and I've gotten some pretty good uh, feedback on it. Again, that phone number is 425-653-1166. Next up, Kelly Yang. She is a New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is Top Story, the fifth book in what is called Front Desk Series. Kelly's family immigrated to the United States from China, and uh, we'll get into all of that in the interview with my conversation with Kelly Yang. Why did your parents immigrate from China to the U.S.? They had very successful careers in China, so why did they feel necessary to move to the U.S.? You know, that's a great question. Uh, my parents, my, my mom was an engineer, my dad was a doctor in China, and they had these really great careers, but they also grew up during very turbulent times in China. Um, and my mom really remembers, you know, the Cultural Revolution, and, you know, both my parents were affected, my grandparents were affected. And I think one of the things that they were worried about for me was growing up in China, what would that be like? Like, would I be able to, um, you know, have that same thing happen where I say, say the wrong thing and then maybe something happens to me or I don't know. So they were really worried about that. And I think that they thought that coming to America would give me um, this freer future, you know, and obviously things weren't perfect here either. They had a really hard time, you know, struggling to make money and they had to take on some really hard jobs, including working in motels, which is what inspired the series. Uh, but ultimately, I think that they they did do the right thing. They gave me the education that I think made me who I am, which is someone who can think critically about things and I can use my voice and I don't feel scared and I, hard as it is sometimes in this country and there's a lot of problems, um, but we can be part of the solution and we can reflect. And those are things that I don't know they had in China. Now you uh, first moved to LA, correct? And then you moved up to the Bay Area. Could you just uh, trace that history? They actually first moved to Louisiana and then we drove to Los Angeles. Um, I grew up all over Southern California. We managed motels in Anaheim, um, Newport Beach, and San Diego. And then I had an opportunity to go to college really early, which is a strange, bizarre thing, and I don't recommend it, but anyway, that's what happened. And I went to school in Berkeley, so then we moved up north to San Francisco, and then I went to school in Boston, so, and, you know, the rest is history. But, yeah, that's my... <laughs> Your book top story, the main character, how close does her experience resemble yours? Mia is sort of like my alter ego. She is the version of me that I wish I was growing up. I wish I had her bravery. She says things. I mean, she's not afraid to call people out when they're being mean to her, when she's bullied. Um, I didn't always have the same courage growing up. But when I was working in the motel after school, I did. So her whole experience after school is very much based on my experience after school working in those motels. It's like I suddenly became a different person. I would take charge. I would help guests with their problems. I worked incredibly hard. I took a lot of pride in making sure everyone was happy at the motel. Um, so I think that can-do spirit definitely is something that I share with Mia. Well, you glossed over something that I want to highlight a little bit. Uh, it sounds like you have always been an underachiever. What you didn't say is you attended college at the University of California at Berkeley at 13 years old and then began Harvard Law School at 17. You hear those stories every now and then, but it's really every now and then. But then you didn't practice law. Why? I didn't practice law. Um, two reasons. One, I, I was very young. I was only 20 when I got out. And uh, back in those days, I think a lot of people went directly into corporate law just to pay off their student loans. I had a couple of internships in corporate law. And at first, I was kind of excited. I thought, you know, it was going to be like, did you ever see that show, The Practice? I thought was, Certainly. I thought yes, like I that. did. And in reality, it's a lot of just helping big corporations uh, with all their different legal problems, a lot of paperwork. It wasn't the kind of writing that I was looking forward to, which is about like 
people and real life and stories. That was always what, what I wanted to do. That's what got me into law school in the first place was writing. Um, so I thought about that. I also really wanted to try teaching kids. Um, and it was, it was something that I just, I really wanted to be around kids. I think, again, I didn't really have a childhood. I, I rushed through it so quickly. I went to college at a ridiculous age. Um, so the opportunity came along for me to teach a class on creative writing for a school. And I took it, and I, I kind of never looked back. The book Top Story, your most recent book, what would you like a young reader or anybody, for that matter, to take away after they finish the book? I want them to take away that they can be proud of who they are and where they come from. It's sometimes uh, a little terrifying to share a little bit about ourselves to someone else. We're so worried about them not understanding or judging us. But really, I think what's beautiful about all of us is that we each have a top story in us. And I wish I could go back in time and tell more, tell my, of my best friend growing up that I worked in a motel, but I was so, I was so obsessed with keeping it a secret, um, in part because I didn't have books like these growing up, that I didn't tell anyone at school. And I really regret that. I think I could have had a lot of fun with my friends in the motel, and so I want to empower kids to tell their stories, to open up and share with someone in the world what they're going through. Because I promise you, someone in the world will understand. Your mother was very competent in math, and uh, she taught at a local high school. <laughs> and, and I thought that was really interesting how she gained her confidence. But I think I read in that passage that her true message to you was knowing your true worth. Is that accurate? Yeah. My mom is obsessed with math. Um, that's her jam, and she like tries to teach it to everyone that she sees. She was a, a teacher, and she ultimately got a job teaching math in the high schools in Berkeley. So she ultimately got to pursue her dream. But one of the things I think um, that is important, that it took all of us a really long time to realize is the value of our work, you know? And for me as a writer, especially with the writer strike going on, I mean, it's something that is so personal, right? Just that even though we as creators are always just so grateful to just be able to tell our stories, we, we also have to value it and to know our worth, know what we're bringing to the table and honor that. Um, and that's something that Mia has to discover. You know, she is so eager to tell her stories but sometimes we have to sit back a little bit and be, and understand that we are worth a lot. These stories are amazing. All of us, our contributions to the world are invaluable. Just do something about the mechanics of writing a book. What is your routine? How do you do that day in and day out? Do you have like a set time in the morning, like 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock a.m. you just write? Or how do you get to the finish line? So many people want to write books. There's a book in everyone. We hear that. And but only a small percentage actually execute it. How do you make it happen? It's a lot of discipline, like you said. It's it's again having that work ethic. I treat it like it's a real job. Uh, I mean, it is a real job, but I mean, I treat it like it's an actual you know company job or whatever. Where I have to show up. I think showing up is like ninety percent of it. Um, I make myself sit in front of my computer and write from you know, like 10 o'clock to uh, usually until my kids get home from school. I have this, uh, I have this program on my computer which locks me out of my email. Um, there's also a option to lock me out of the internet entirely. And so I, you know, I, I have the same thing with my phone. I shut down my phone, I'll put on screen time or whatever. It's really just blocking out every possible excuse um, to not write and making yourself do it. Sure. No, absolutely. Not being distracted. I work on that all the time. Have you ever been to Seattle? I have. I was there in March for my book launch of my last book, Finally Seen. I love Seattle. It was so much fun. I can't wait to go back. You have noticed that there's been an uptick of anti-Asian sentiments and behavior in this country. Could you discuss that? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think um, during the pandemic, there was a very huge wave, very unfair wave of backlash against Asian Americans. Um, a lot of that was fanned by a lot of the uh, racism that was happening all over the country. 
And I really want people to be kinder to each other, you know. I mean, not just towards Asian Americans, but to all of us. Everyone is struggling. It's a hard time. You know, a lot of people are really struggling, getting, getting, having gone through the pandemic and then recovering. I think so many people are still recovering, whether it's financially or emotionally. And just for all of us to be kinder to each other, to understand that we're all going through a lot and we're all going to be better off if we have a, a... joy like we have love and joy and positivity to look forward to well my thanks to kelly lang for spending time with us today on voices of experience now if you would like to get a copy of her book all you need to do is google top story dash yang and that's y-a-n-g top story dash yang y-a-n-g Did you know if you're an adult living with asthma or COPD, getting sick with pertussis may result in severe complications? Pertussis, or whooping cough, is a serious respiratory illness. Vaccination is the best way to help protect against pertussis. Speak to your healthcare provider to ensure you are up to date on your Tdap vaccination. Learn more at lung.org. I just decided a couple of weeks ago to Google the most listened to songs of all time. And I was thinking radio. Now, I wasn't sure that such a list even existed. Well, it does. There are several of these lists, or actually more than that. One of the most listened to songs on some of the lists is this week's Timeless Classic. I remember really liking this song over the years, but I had no idea it would be even close to being one of the most listened to songs ever. Now, I'm pretty sure you will agree with me on both counts. This week's Timeless Classic reached number one in the United States and in Great Britain during the same week. From February of 1965, You've Lost That Loving Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips There's no Tenderness like grief in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it. You lost that love and feeling. Just feel like crying Cause baby Something 